Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief here on this lovely April afternoon, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, is it a lovely April afternoon there in the wilds of the eastern seaboard? Uh, no, no. It's, it's quite cold, um, and it's raining quite hard. But I don't care. I have a sunny disposition. I'm excited. <laughs> Raining quite hard sounds lovely. Like where I live in Colorado, it doesn't rain very often, and so when it does, it's like a it's a treat. Mm, I wouldn't call this a treat. Um, this is definitely going to store up a field of dandelions for me in the backyard. I but see. That's all right. I don't care. I'm in a very good mood. It is Friday afternoon. I have plans. I'm I'm excited. I am giddy as a schoolboy, J.D. I suppose that means you want to talk about the New Jersey Devils and their um, extraordinary comeback in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Are they winning? Are they? Are your Are your New Jersey Devils winning? I I haven't been following, except uh, occasionally I see tweets from you saying you're watching the game. So, well, you know, I'm a big hockey fan and a big Devils fan, even though I don't talk about it very often on the show. Yes. Um. And uh, and it's the playoffs, and the Devils have not made the playoffs in a couple of years, but have had just an extraordinary year. And um, and I wasn't really sure what to expect from the playoffs. They had an extraordinary year. I think they have like something this year, like something like forty points more on the regular season than they did last year, which is to say, many, many, many more wins than they did last season. And uh, and but I still wasn't sure what to expect from the playoffs because the Boston Bruins, of course, are having an absolutely historic season, one of the greatest seasons uh, in terms of win loss records in ho- in the history of hockey. And I thought, okay, well, I don't know how we'll run through the playoffs, but I don't think we'll get out of the Eastern Conference because of Boston. Boston is actually having a harder time dispatching the lowly Florida Panthers than anyone would have anticipated. But more to the point, um, I was a little bit nervous about how the Devils would play against our most hated rivals, the the New York Rangers, in the first round of the playoffs because um, we've had this extraordinary run in the regular season, but a lot of our players are really young. Like you look at these kids and they're like 20, 20 years old, you know, and they're kids. And I feel actually older and older because I look at them and they're, they're kids. The true definition of middle age is when you're watching a sporting event and you address one of the players on screen as son and it's actually yeah, demographically that's, possible. That's right. That's absolutely. Well, I think, I don't think there's probably anyone on the, on the devil's roster who I couldn't at the very least biologically be the father to if, if, if nothing else. So, um, uh, but at the first two games of the playoffs against the Rangers, you know, we had a we had a better record than them, and we had a better regular season than them. But they just walloped us at home for the first two games. And I thought, after the first one, I thought, okay, well, we're young, and we had sort of the yips, and got that out of our system, and then we'll go and we'll kind of run through them for the rest of the series. After the second game, I thought, well, that was a fun regular season, um, you know. But I guess there's always next year for the playoffs. And I was thinking to myself, I'm optimistic. And, you know, we have some great, really, really phenomenally talented young players. And a long rebuild is probably coming to fruition now after several fits and starts of not coming to fruition. And I thought, okay, I can be really excited about next year. And I was especially excited after the first two games of the series about a goaltender who didn't get to play in those first two games named Akira Schmid. Because Akira Schmidt is really young, but I've been really, and he's, so he's played as a backup a little bit this season, but I've been really bullish about him thinking he's the goaltender of the future and um, feeling like next year he could earn, you know, at least a kind of tandem role where he was playing a lot of games. And I was excited about that along with this core forwards and defensemen that we have that are really coming to their own. But in game three of this series, we started Akira and uh, he played 
lights out and everybody played better in front of him. And we won that game. Game four, Akira played lights out. Everybody played better in front of him. We won that game. Last night at this kid, 22 years old, he's played like a handful of National Hockey League games, 20 something games. He played most of the season in Utica. Two seasons ago, he was in the U.S. Hockey League, which is a junior's development league and effectively a sort of amateur feeder system for for professional hockey or college hockey. Um, and last night, the kid had a had a shutout in the Stanley Cup playoffs as a very young, very, very green rookie. And I'm super excited because we're going to beat the Rangers. We'll see what happens after that. But um, I uh, beating the Rangers is, is, is enough for me. I'm, I'd love to win the Stanley Cup. This is a very young team. There are some very good teams this season. I don't know about getting through Boston, but beating the Rangers is enough for me. And I'm just super excited to have seen it happen. Beating New York is important. And I, I want to affirm you in that. And I'm glad that you're enjoying your, your stickball. Um, I'm going to medieval times tonight. So <laughs> yes, you are. It's going to be you, amazing. You're going to medieval times with a friend or something. I know you've been talking about this for weeks and weeks now, but I'm, I must admit I'm hazy on the details. So, so you and, and some friends are going to medieval times and is this to celebrate your birthday? Sort of. Uh, we are, my, some in-laws are in town and I, Yes, they are in town. They're, they're also um, our daughter's godparents. and From you know, Merry Old England. They're in town from Merry Old England. Uh, they, that's where they live. Um, okay. And, you know, they've, they've, they, whenever they come to visit, they always want to see real, real America, real, you know, barbecue, baseball, that sort of thing. And, and I've been saying, you know, if you want to see the soul of America, the raw id of the United States, you have to go to medieval times. That's... That's as America as it gets. So we're doing it tonight. We're going we're gonna to do it. We were going to go last week. We couldn't get a babysitter this week. We still couldn't get a babysitter. We're just taking the baby, which I, I mean. It's fine. What I've could go wrong, med- right? No, I've been to medieval times with kids. It's totally fine. Have we not had a lot of conversations about this on the show, or do I just imagine that? I don't know. We need to index our shows so that we know if we're just repeating our conversations, because I can't remember. I had read a bunch in the past couple of months about the medieval times workers the knights effectively wanting to unionize and getting into some real there's some real like heavy guild (laughs) yeah there would be i think they ultimately did unionize but there was some real union busting you know going on from the upper management of medieval times over this and i I can't remember if we've talked about it or not on the show but when that was happening i did i read a little bit about like what it takes to become a medieval times guy and stuff you know there's not they have to do their own in-house training there's obviously not a sort of stable of um, of, of there's competent. No, there's no peewee league for medieval right, times. Right, exactly. So the people you they don't hire... do the sort of local Renaissance fair circuit for a few years, and maybe you know you get scouted. And... Yeah, they're either actors or they're athletes, local like high school or D three athletes or something like that, who uh, you know are looking for a way to put that um, into their professional lives, and uh, and and then they the, the a lot of the training. It's a lot less systematic than you would think to become a medieval times actor. You really just sort of are thrown in there and uh, and certainly apprentice. Well, it's acting in the same way that it's scripted and it's scripted sports entertainment. It's it strikes me as being exactly the same as professional wrestling, but with horses. So I suppose. I mean, the risk to life and limb is presumably real enough. Yeah, they're obviously in real danger. There's horses and swords and whatnot, and so you can obviously sprain your wrist or whatever pretty easily. Uh, but um, I can't remember if the outcome is prescripted in terms of which knight is going to win the the tournament. I I would like to think that there's probably um, 
you know, I, I'm expecting, again, I've only ever been once and I was, you know, it was like my eighth birthday or something like that, but I had a great time. And so I'm going at it with the same wide eye. Yeah, I hope you're not disappointed. Sky high expectations of an eight year old. <laughs> but um, I, I like to think that there are probably, you know, faces and heels and, you know, there's, there's a rough sketch of who's going to do, but right, most of exactly. it's probably free form. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, you got to think that the, the narrative arc of the evening is in some way responsive to the crowd. Like if somebody gets over, if one of the knights really gets over with the crowd, you, you, you're going to, they, they got to have it. Either they have to have him win or he's got to lose in some sort of crushing act of treachery at the end to the, to the heel. Like you, I, you've got to take the crowd with you. I don't know. We went to a big, like an almost an all day um, tournament of strength and combat at a medieval fair, a Renaissance fair rather, uh, last summer in Colorado, which is don't take your kids to a Renaissance fair in Colorado. It's not appropriate for children. But we didn't sort of know live that. dissections of human corpses to you know discover no. how muscles work together. And no, it just other what things we that learned, the Renaissance is famous for. What we learned is that it's just a gathering place for those engaged in all kinds of alternative lifestyles, and I wouldn't have anticipated that. And so there was a lot of like, look over there, don't look over there. Um, and uh, and so anywho. It was kind of like an all-day tournament. We kept kind of coming back to it because we'd paid to get in. So, you know, you walk around for a little while, then you sit down and eat a turkey leg and watch them fight or whatever. And um, the people who the crowd were most responsive to really were not, were kind of minor characters. I don't think they did modify the script to reflect the desires of the crowd. But, you know, that for them, they're doing it once a year or whatever, and then maybe move on to the next town. Whereas at medieval times, I mean, it's night after night after night. So they're pros. Yeah. I mean, I'm expecting to see peak human performance here i'd i'd urge you you haven't been since you were a child so i'll offer you this advice i'd urge you uh to eat before you go what yeah i mean i urge Don't they give you, you a chicken or something i do i the last time i went to medieval times was probably three years ago and i do recall that the food was not good oh that's disappointing <laughs> I, I mean i wasn't expecting you know i wasn't expecting le bernardin but i you know i thought they're just like, they give you a half a chicken or something that had been grilled and like how you can't. You I know. think they give you a half a chicken, but I think it's been maybe steam cooked and then microwaved. Oh, bummer. Yeah. That's disappointing. Well, that's all right. There's a Chick-fil-A across the road from. Yeah, I'd so urge you to. Hit to... that on the way home. Uh, well, yeah, or the way there so that you're not, you don't want to be cranky during the thing. Uh, I don't know. I get pretty, I get pretty rowdy when I'm hungry. I know, might, I might know that. What does one wear to medieval times these days? Is this a suit and tie affair? <sighs> you have to decide how committed you are to the to the entire affair and, and whether... Oh, I'm committing to the bit. I'm What kind of... You know what I'd wear if I were you, just knowing what's in your closet? <laughs> Go on. I'd wear a Western shirt. <gasps> <laughs> it seems like the right place, and I can't even... Challenge accepted. Yeah, I, it just doesn't it seem I'm like gonna the wear right... the Yeah, I'll wear the Sugar Skull Western shirt. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's what I would do if I were you. <laughs> okay, we can't talk about this anymore. <laughs> no, we can't. We need to stop. And last week we talked, uh, we talked a little bit sort of unexpectedly about um, the juridic status effectively of the National Eucharistic Congress. And it was kind of a, it was actually kind of a sidetrack from a conversation that we meant to have, which who knows, maybe we'll have it today. I don't know what, what we'll get sidetracked with today. But uh, we did have kind of a sidetrack from, uh, from what we meant to talk about and ended up talking about the juridic status of the National Eucharistic Congress. And the, the gist of that conversation was effectively to say, um, uh, 
you know, to sort of do an examination of the question of does the National Eucharistic Congress have a sort of formal canonical identity? And our our sort of sense of the thing was no, it doesn't. It's it's organized by a civil corporation, and it's um and and we sort of pointed out that's kind of an interesting situation because it's something which we would rather sort of definitively say is is the church acting a Eucharistic Congress seems to be this profoundly ecclesial event. And yet, it's the sort of thing that is not like does not have a category in our law, or is not sort of established as a category in our law. And I, I don't know about you, but I got some questions about that that made me want to sort of continue that conversation because I think it's there's an inter, there's a re, we sort of talked about the the questions of the Eucharistic Congress, but I actually am not interested in the Eucharistic Congress's juridic status as such. I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, but I, to be honest, I think. Um, the, the really interesting question here is about sort of how the church's law with regard to corporations and administ- and financial administration sort of fits in the contemporary sort of experience of what you might call missiology or missio action, like um, a- the apostolic activity of the life of the church today. Um, because the, um, as you well know, you know, the 1983 Code of Canon Law was meant to reflect the um and and so the the point I want to make is I want to kind of go on this thing, but the point I want to make is our discussion last week wasn't meant to be about the National Eucharistic Congress. In fact, the we sort of started asking this question: Are the goods of the Eucharistic Congress bona ecclesiastica and these kinds of things? And the conclusion that we came to, which is that the Eucharistic Congress, which is this ecclesial thing, has a has a civil law structure but not a canonical structure. That seems to me to be true, and it seems worth saying to be true for any number of kind of apostolic projects or activities that one would think of as being, you know, that one thinks of as being ecclesial and and connected to the life of the church. And, you know, I think probably kind of CRS fits in that category or other Catholic sort of bishop-centric projects fit in that category. And raising the question, we did some sort of comparison to like the world meaning of families and things like that, but raising the question about that and continuing to discuss that, I don't want to confuse sort of having a discussion about governance structures in the church with a criticism of of the of the Eucharistic Congress from a from a sort of administrative point of view. I don't have a criticism of the Eucharistic Congress from an administrative point of view. I know who the bishops are who are on the board of the Eucharistic Congress and I think well of them and I think many of them have demonstrated records of good administrative management. I know who the lay people are on the board of the National Eucharistic Congress. I know I think many of them have a, a good record of good administrative management. So I, I think there's an interesting sort of structural question about the, the situation of the law and the life of the church, but I don't want that to be confused with something which is specifically pointed at the Eucharistic Congress, because I think that's just an example of an interesting sort of question, nor do I want it to seem in any way to suggest a sort of um, uh, malignant, a diagnosis of malignance on with regard to the Eucharistic Congress, because that's not really the point at all. Fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. Okay. So the thing that I've been sort of thinking about with regard to that is like, um, okay, so the 83 code, um, Ed, why did we get an 83 code? Um, uh, Vatican II. Yeah, we got an 83 code, right? Because we had law. Uh, We had law already. We had a 17 code. And then we had new sort of articulations of the mission of the church. Let's say that the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council. If we're going to, if we're going to go there, we should, we should make it clear that, you know, it wasn't that we had Vatican II and then the Pope or the church or the council father said, Ooh, we should, we should think about a new code. No, that actually um, the, the, the announcement of the convocation of the Second Vatican Council by John the 23rd took place, I think, on the same day, if it wasn't the same day, it was successive days. I can't remember which, but they were both dated. I think from John. Yeah, from what was it? Paul John the twenty third said, "We're he, I said we're going to have like an ecumenical he, he, council, and we're going to have 
and we're going to have a new of code. John Ladder. We're going to have an ecumen- I think it was a feast of Saint John Ladder. He said we're going to have an ecumenical council and a new code. Bam. And we're going to have a new code. Right. And he, he sort of he pressed play on both of those and said, "So everyone, gear up for the ecumenical council and gear up for making a new code of canon law." And then immediately hit pause on the process for making a new code of canon law because he said, "Well, really, we should do these in sequence because how can the new law reflect what the council?" discusses and teaches right. and comes up with if it hasn't happened yet. So we'll have them, instead of doing them in parallel tracks, we'll do them one after the other. Perfect. Exactly. And so one of the things that happens in the Second Vatican Council that I think is a significant and sort of well-recognized element of the life of the council is that the council fathers uh, emphasize the universal call to holiness, which is to say everyone is called to be a saint. Um, And in emphasizing the universal call to holiness, also emphasize sort of the universal call to apostolate, to apostolic activity, right? That the mission of, of all Catholics, not only sort of clerics or religious, but the mission of all Catholics is to take responsibility so that the gospel is proclaimed always and everywhere, and that a witness to the gospel is undertaken with intentionality at all times and all places, and that care for the poor and proclamation of the faith and proclamation of the kingdom and teaching the faith and all of the things and, and supporting um, divine worship, all of the things which are par- part and parcel of the mission of the church are uh, emphasized in the Second Vatican Council as being the responsibility of all the baptized. So there's a sort of re-emphasis on, because I don't think there was a question that sort of clerics had a responsibility to those things, there was a re-emphasis sort of on lay apostolic activity and evangelical activity in the life of the church. Is that fair? I think that's fair. And so when the 83 Code comes along, the 83 Code in certain areas of the law does a lot to adapt the law to the theological emphases of the Second Vatican Council. And these things, which I just mentioned, are sort of taken up in what we might call the sort of um, the sort of uh, Bill of Rights and Duty and Obligations section of the of the code, where a sort of a list of rights and obligations are... Rights and are, obligations of the Christian faithful. All of them, clerics, and specifically the laity. And they're enumerated, right? They enumerate like rights and obligations, and some of them pertain to apostolic activity and... Do, doing the things which which Christians are called to do. But Ed, it does not seem to me that Book 5 of the Code of Canon Law, which governs sort of temporal goods, corporate law, corporate administration in the life of the Church, actually caught up to that call, that the 1983 iteration of Canon Law actually caught up to a vision of the Church in which there's a profusion of apostolic activity that isn't always and everywhere centered in the juridic person of the parish, the juridic person of the diocese, the juridic person of the of the institute of the religious institute, but might be generated by short term sort of project based uh, consortiums, aggregates of persons who ex- who come together to accomplish some project, or sort of initiatives of laity by themselves who are coming together to initiate a project, which might have sort of perpetuity or which might not. But you know, the sort of a, the corporations which laity can sort of belong to in the church are personal associations of people in which membership is the emphasis of the thing rather than mission is the emphasis of the thing. So it seems to me that one of the lessons of the last 60 years, I guess, well, 40 years since the code, but six years since the council is, we really don't, it does not seem to me, have law which accurately sort of takes up a broader vision of apostolic activity than you might have seen emphasized in a pre-conciliar moment. Is that, what do you think of that? I, I think you're right. I, I don't know that I would fault the 83 code for not having caught up. I think a lot of what we've seen has come after that as well, or at yeah, least that's was, not true. Rec- was not at the point of the promulgation of the 83 code sufficiently established and, and understandable that you could have systematized it in the code. And I think one of the way, one of the, so the law always makes two presumptions. By the law, I mean book five um, here. 
which is it makes and actually the whole code, the whole eighty three code really operates off of these two presumptions, uh, which is one permanence, you know, just that the thing is going to keep going forever, uh, and two locality, either in the parish, the particular church that is the diocese, or the society of apostolic life, or religious institute, or or whatever else it might be. But it presumes a locality and it presumes permanence and. I think one of the big things we have seen, and the law doesn't quite, um, if it if it isn't a if the law isn't an, isn't a perfect embodiment of it, the law I think is at least not an impediment to it either at this point. But it's not a great articulation of, for example, the importance these days of national episcopal conferences. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. that they have taken on a much more outsized role and importance and centrality to the life of the church in different places than I think was expected at the Second Vatican Council or was realized at the time of the promulgation of the 83 Code. And I think you're right that what the what the Code and what Book 5 in particular doesn't accommodate well or even conceive of, arguably, is these sort of pop-up apostolates that do a thing for a time in a in a place, but that thing in that time and that place might not be particular to a diocese or a parish. Which or, is a good thing. The pop-up apostolic Which is a good thing. No, but this is the, right, yeah. this, I mean, if you read something like um, Apostolicum Actua Citatum, which is the, the post-conciliar exhortation of Paul VI on lay apostolates, um, you get a sense that this is sort of what, what they were hoping to see. Yeah. That lay people would be spontaneous and grounded in the faith and working with the church, but not entirely dependent on the hierarchy to be the sort of first mover on yeah, everything. Yeah, the father and pastors the and the general of all the things. And exactly. all the activity is undertaken directly under the aegis of father pastor or bishop bishop or whatever. But the thing is, you can't you can hope for, but you can't predict spontaneity. Yeah. And that's kind of what the post-conciliar decades have been, in part, is a, is a hoped-for, but at the same time, unpredictable spontaneity that has grown up. And so how do you how do you begin to accommodate that in the legal structures? I mean, you see this, you know, we I think we talked a couple of weeks ago about ecclesiastical movements and aggregates uh, that sort of walk and quack like movements, um, and how Rome has has been slowly reforming them through the what we're now calling the dicastery for laity, family, and life, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and, and sort of, you know, getting statutes through and, and having sort of broader reforms for all of these things on, you know, turnover in leadership and, and stuff like that, all of which I think is a is a recognition of, you know, there, there are these things that we hoped would happen, but when we hoped where they would happen, we couldn't foresee what sort of shape they would take. And now that we're seeing them and we have a better grasp of what they look like and how they walk, talk, and quack, we can begin to accommodate them better in a structural way. I think we we could see, we should see, we need to see some similar accommodation for, you know, things like, well, I suppose not the Eucharistic Congress, because you said you don't want to use that as an example this week, but, um, you know, uh, event-centered or programmatic um, pro-tem-centered mm-hmm. events and apostolates, which cross diocesan boundaries, but aren't necessarily... You know, functions of the National Bishops Conference or or something like that, and which are collaborations. Like, for example, the the Eucharistic Congress. An interesting thing about it is, it is a collaboration of bishops and laity who are sort of leading it with sort of partners, and so it is sort of this. It not only crosses boundaries, but you couldn't properly say it was an apostolate of any one thing. It's an apostolate of many ca- of many Catholics. Some of you know who are in various yeah. states of life, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Which is actually what, you know. Um, Which is precisely what the council calls for. And that's precisely my point what the council calls like- for. It actually is the closest we have to something like that in the current law is basically an association of the faithful. But again, which, that's sort of... But that's the a end, presumed permanence. And the end of an association of faithful, that sort of telos of an association of the faithful, is the associating, right? It's 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 yes. like you have an association of the faithful and that association, you have some aggregate of people who come together and they share perhaps a common spirituality or a common mission or whatever, but the, the end is the coming together. No, no, because what defines um, a public juridic association in the church is that it has a mandate. It's given a mission. Sure, but... The associating well, no. isn't... What defines a public juridic person in the church is the promulgation of its statutes. It might Fine, have a mission, but, my... but it might have a mission like a religious institute where the mission is... And I no, think... What, for... what distinguishes a public from a private association is that it has a particular mission, is that it does something in nomine ecclesia. It does something in nomine ecclesia, that's true, Oh, I think we're getting sidetracked here with the uh, distinction are, that I have I never heard in my life. I can see us both getting that crazy glint in our <laughs> eye where I'm... <laughs> You're saying something and I'm like, I can't believe you think that's true. <laughs> this is a comps question for me and it's something I've used in my own graduate material. <laughs> Like it's, I'm not saying that's the that's the dictionary definition, but I'm saying that's the tell. Like if you're looking at something like, does this have feathers in a beak? Like that's what you look for is where is the thing it does in Nomine Ecclesia? Uh, okay, I'm not even sure where to go here because I, I think that that would be a different conversation. You, <laughs> you're so you happy talking, about that. Buddy, I'm... <laughs> you're so happy about that. Keep going. Okay, well, I can't keep going because now we're on a different track. I told you I didn't know we were going to get sidetracked with today, and this is it. An association, by its very nature, is an aggregate. Of no, 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 let's who, not get sidetracked. Let's not. Let's let's. let's I'm not. Keep I'm, over I'm the going t- back to where I was. Okay. Yeah, an association, by its very nature, is an aggregate of persons who may indeed have some mission. And you're saying that a characteristic of a public association is that it has commissioned some mission, but I don't think that that's reflective of the law or the church's theology of associations. But anyway, an association. But you do, and maybe we'll come back to that. But the I didn't point, say theology. Don't talk to me about theology. <laughs> But the point of the point is, an association is something where membership is a prized element of the thing, rather than kind of coming together by virtue of a common mission. Like, and so we can think about a moral person, which doesn't have sort of legal status as something which has a kind of commissioned mission. But the church's law doesn't have, and this was the point where we were building towards. The church's law doesn't have a kind of uh, setup for something which uh, some or some group of people who have come together in order to accomplish something, and they don't intend to sort of exist in perpetuity and. That they're not coming together with the notion of like having a common spirituality and charism, and where sort of the the being together is as much as much a part of the identity as the apostolate. Rather, it's we're working on an apostolate. The church's law just doesn't have that, and so you know you have many, many, many ecclesiastical sort of organizations in the ecclesiastical milieu which are organized as civil corporations, and actually, there's a lot of good that comes out of their being organized as civil corporations because. Civil corporations have all these transparency requirements that ecclesiastical organizations don't have, and um, and that allows sort of for more reporting. And, you know, we're talking about the Eucharistic Congress. The point with the Eucharistic Congress is I think they're intending to publish, like, their financial reports and the notion of any other sort of nonprofit. And so there's much more transparency in American civil law. And so that's sort of a good thing that exists in American civil law. But the church's law has not sort of taken up the more considerably more sophisticated sort of corporate law structures which exist for different purposes, the church's law tends only, I think, really to think about sort of things which are 
yeah, permanent and institutional structure like the parish or groups of people who are sort of coming together, but again, in a kind of permanent and associative way rather than a sort of missional way. So it, it seems to me as we were thinking about this that I just don't think that the church's sort of financial administrative law has caught up on a kind of Vatican II missiology, so to speak. Now, you might have a point about um, public juridic persons that I haven't thought about at all, because I do think, of course, it's true that public juridic persons speak in nomine ecclesiae, but I, no, no, I no, have thought about that as... public associations. All public juridic persons speak in nomine ecclesiae. Public associations, which are which are public juridic persons, speak and act in nomine ecclesiae. Fine. I, I, I'm, I'm narrowly defining my terms, because the canon I was looking for, I think, was... Three one three because we were talking about that. I said the distinction or an important does it have feathers in a beak between a private association and a public association of the faithful was mission and canon three one three um, by decree the competent ecclesiastical authority according to the norms of three one two erects a public association and even a confederation of such associations and it is constituted direct person and receives a mission Sorry. for the purposes which it pursues or is to pursue in the name of the church. Sorry, you, I think you missed a clause. Are you translating or reading in the English? I'm translating. Okay, um, I think you missed a clause that I think is oh. actually pretty central. Okay. Uh, the, here's the uh, church's official English translation, which I'm not sure what the clause is in Latin because I only have the English in front of me. But through the same decree by which the competent ecclesiastical authority, according to the norm of Canon 312, erects a public association and even con a confederation of public associations is constituted a juridic person. So the decree which erects makes it a juridic person. And here's the clause. To the extent it is required, receives a mission for the purposes which it proposes to pursue. So a public association can be missional, but the missional element is, according to this canon, sort of accidental and not primary in the way that membership is okay okay <laughs> are you mad no i'm not mad at all I, the, the test holds which is if it has a missio canonica it has to be public and it can't be a private association which was the point i was making okay yeah sure that is true the test does hold but it but it could be a public association of the faithful without one which was the point i was making an association which does nothing but associate. An association which, like, like you would not say that, I do not think that the secular Franciscans, for example, a public association of the faithful, probably have a relatively... Have a, point, a mission. <laughs> I think their mission is the charism and identity, right? I'm going to hear from so many secular Franciscans or secular Dominicans or whatever. Their mission is the charism and JD identity of the thing. PillarCatholic.com. <laughs> All complaints on a postcard. So what I want to talk about more, actually, is what could... What what things could be taken up into the church's law to sort of better? Um, is there value to the church's law sort of ad adapting a more sophisticated corporate law? And I would argue that there is. And then what things could the church's law take up? But I want to talk about that because I'm looking at the clock after a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, or St. Bernard's School, if you're an American listener. It's a Catholic graduate school that seeks to reunite theology, prayer, and sanctity by providing formation that isn't about information, but true formation of mind and heart, led by a personal encounter with truth, goodness, and beauty, conveyed in the way they do theology and philosophy in and from the heart of the church. Based in Rochester, New York, the classes at St. Bernard School of Theology are available in person, but also online. Each course is taught live, allowing students from across the country to engage in a community of learning as they believe in a fully integrated model that allows live engagement and accompaniment. St. Bernard School of Theology offers uh, a lot of degrees. You can get a master's degree in theological studies, a master's in pastoral studies, a master of divinity, or a master of arts and Catholic philosophy. You can also get a graduate certificate in biblical 
Bible studies or catechetical leadership or philosophy, evangelization in partnership with the St. John Society in Portland, Oregon, or Catholic bioethics in partnership with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. A lot of people, you know, sort of train for the sake of training or educate for the sake of educating. But what St. Bernard's does is they offer a classical approach to education that emphasizes the human person, uh, what they call a kneeling theology character building and an existential commitment and invitation. Join them this summer if you want in auditing one of their courses totally free, made possible by the Knights of Columbus Finger Lakes chapter. Nice one, guys. Um, and you can learn more by visiting their website at www.stbernards.edu. Again, that's St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry, stbernards.edu. Okay, we are back, and we're talking about uh, corporate law and the life of the church. And so, you know, the situation, I think, right now is, uh, and we sort of got to this before, is that um, there are a lot of ecclesiastical institutions which have sort of separated from or shed their ecclesiastical identity. Catholic colleges and universities, when I've talked about the sort of great um, alienation of, of the sort of transfer of, of, uh, of institutions which were sponsored by religious institutes and, uh, you know, apostolates of religious institutes and then sort of transition to self-perpetuating lay boards. I've talked about the way in which uh, EWTN, the largest sort of media, Catholic media institution probably in, in the world, um, was at one time an apostolate of, a, of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, and then the, the sort of board made a vote to kind of uh, alienate the property of the, of the thing and the, the entity of the of the of EWTN from the sisters and there's some canonical questions about that but I, I'm not really talking so much about that now right it's that I'm not really talking about that now I'm talking about sort of things which have emerged which have um, a kind of um, yeah project apostolic identity which um, are you know initiatives I can think of things like the lay formation project which is kind of a project that involves a lot of Dominicans um, in the West Coast province, but is not sort of, I don't think, an official apostolate of those Dominicans. And it also involves lay people, and there's a kind of corporate board which governs it. Or I think like the Thomistic Institute, which in as much as I know, and again, I'm just speculating here, but in as much as I know, probably involves a lot of Dominicans, but is not sort of formally a an apostolate of the Dominican province of the East Coast. And there are a lot of things like that, which are like projects which involve religious or diocesan priests or an amalgamation of religious and diocesan priests or religious sisters and lay people all sort of working together for common cause for some purpose. The St. John Paul II Foundation, which does kind of like training for doctors and lawyers and other professionals in kind of Catholic formation and th things like this, which involve people from various states of life, but are not but but did not begin directly as the apostolate of one particular ecclesial thing. And and what those things do is they have, of course, a corporate identity in American law, but there's really not, and that's that provides, as I said, a measure of accountability and transparency that doesn't exist in our law, but there's really not a canonical category into which they fit or a sort of canon law box into which they could easily into which they could even easily be incorporated if they wanted to fall under canon law. So the question becomes, does the church have an interest in like more oversight of apostolic activity one? And then two, how would she actually do it in a way that is that that actually reflects like the reality of contemporary apostolic experience? Um I don't know. I I mean I think you'd have to create an entire new category heading in the law for what you might call, I don't know, would you call it a mission? I mean, I'm trying to think of the right word because you don't want to call it 
an association because the associating, as you say, isn't necessarily the the primary the, the point. Primary, I mean, the primary, yeah. Um, you, Nor do you, you want to you call be, it a foundation because, like, we do have foundations in the law, but foundations are foundations, yeah. meant to be perpetual too, and then pay off some money. In a canonical sense, a foundation is meant to be perpetual, then pay off some money, like for some, the accomplishment of some pious purpose every year, yeah. but it's not meant to be a sort of short-term thing. So it's not like we could just make it a, th- our current sort of progress for the aggregate of the material goods quite fits the bill either. And, and again, I don't think it's, I don't want to say that ecclesiastical projects that don't have a juridic identity have done something wrong. On the contrary, the point is there's for a lot of no, contemporary ecclesiastical projects, looks like. this is what the church growing looks like where there's really one wonders if there will be new developments in sort of administrative law to accommodate sort of new kinds of ecclesiastical projects. Just looking at the at the law on pious foundations. Um, yeah, I mean I think that's the section of the of the book you'd have to you'd have to look at updating. I I mean what what you come down to is if it's going to be Catholic, someone has to have oversight of it. Or ought to, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, no, yeah. not ought to. You have to. I mean, you can't be a Catholic thing that is. I mean, if it's going to be a canonical thing, no. Even if it's going to be a Catholic thing, someone is responsible for it. If you claim the name Catholic for your thing, you you have to come under ecclesiastical authority somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that if is you, a part if your of the nature. Organization of claims the name Catholic. The place where you're based, the diocesan bishop has oversight and vigilance, and if necessary, sort of you know coercive authority over your over how Catholic you are because you are claiming the name Catholic. Yeah. Um, but we saw in the case of Catholic universities, when we sort of unpack that, that the bishop actually has relatively, in the current state of Catholic universities, precisely because of the sort of disconnect from some apostolic, you know, some apostolic identity, the bishop has sort of relatively limited authority in terms of how he can engage with Catholic universities in his own diocese. Limited, but real. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it, yeah. it's not limited in the sense that he can only go so far. It's limited. As it, it, it's horizontally limited, not vertically limited. That you know, his his scope to um, apply his authority goes right to the bitter end if necessary. It's just that he doesn't have a lot of latitude over how to engage in in different ways. You can really only go in the door one way, which is you know, are you being authentically Catholic in terms of you know faith and morals and stuff like that. Um, but the real problem for things like I don't know. I, again, I don't want to just default to using the Eucharist. CRS. But I mean, even that, does that come under Corunum? Or what we used to call Corunum? I think for sort of mission, but but I don't think in a... I don't know if it has a canonical identity. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I genuinely don't know if it has a canonical identity. All right. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, again, thinking through all of this, this is... And I think we mentioned this last week, like... Pope Francis wants us to think about things in these terms, that, you know, reforms he's yeah. issued... For, for sort of, you know, orbital foundations of this kind around curial departments and papal councils and things like that, you know, show that he, he wants us to, to recognize these, these things as ecclesiastical. Well, here's an example. So we raised the question of the world meaning for families last time, right? Or World Youth Day is coming up this summer in Lisbon, right? And in principle and in reality, the conger the the dicastery for probably lays the marriage family and life and youth because they have all the things now. But in principle, that dicastery, I presume, exercises oversight over the kind of speakers and stuff with regard to World Youth Day. But I also presume that somewhere in Lisbon is a kind of civil corporation called World Youth Day Lisbon twenty twenty three Inc., a Portuguese civil corporation. That Portuguese civil corporation 
I'm not sure what would empower the church to like kind of I, I, like there's probably public accounting report like requirements in Lisbon, which are probably good and which provide a mechanism of, of accountability there. But I'm not sure that that one could, if push came to shove, conclude that the church had any governance or administrative authority over the temporal goods of World Youth Day Inc., a, a Lisbon corporation, unless it was the apostolate of some particular diocese or definitively an apostolate of the Portuguese Bishops Conference or something like that. But if sort of a couple people were sort of heading it up and, you know, it's clear they're doing it from the heart of the church in every single way, but I'm not sure it's sort of a corporation registered in the legal fora of the church in any way, which just presents this sort of what would happen if the Holy See wanted to assess how World Youth Day was spending its money or something like that. I, I, Maybe, I just, but I mean, I think you know, that that's an easier fix to my mind, because something like World Youth Day or the World Meeting of Families takes place on a day in a place, in a diocese. So what juridic identity would you give it? You know? I mean, at that point, but I, I'm saying that's much easier to fit into the existing law on, for example, foundations, which defaults to the diocesan bishop is the is the final executor. So you would suggest, but there would there would need to be some new category of legal entity as an ecclesiastical analog to World Youth Day Inc., a Portuguese nonprofit corporation, like which exists for a particular period of time. You I know, don't know that you. I I think that you could actually with something like that that is is entirely focused at least. Um, in theory, on an event on a day in a place. I think it's easier to make that fit into the category of a foundation as envisaged in the current Book 5, because... You would conclude it as some sort of autonomous, pious foundation or yeah, something but, like that. Yeah, because that already in the law gives a space for the presumed authority of the of the local bishop. And also the Holy See, actually. And right? also you the could Holy See, because... You of, could even have an autonomous, yeah. pious foundation subject only to the governance, reserved to the Holy See. You, you could, know, Subject yes. to the governance of the Holy See. But that would regulate the way in which the thing spent money in all kinds of ways, because then... Exactly. And you what know, you the were way talking the about, about money why do we be... have civil corporate... These things erected as civil corporations, is it's in some cases, for example, liability shields. So we talked about the World Meeting of Families, and you know the idea was if the Archdiocese of Philadelphia went bust, you didn't want the assets of, for example, the World Meeting of Families being made. Families kind of being, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do but all also of that. then it's easier to raise money. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's not only a liability shield, but it's a sort of segregation shield where it's easier to raise money to people who say, "Yeah, I really believe in this, and I want to support this and lock my." And we in. have yeah. this already existing in diocese under the current Book Five, because for example, every diocese has or is supposed to have um, a, a similar foundation, the purpose of which is the upkeep of Catholic cemeteries, for example. Mm-hmm. And this was one of those things that where you don't do your paperwork properly and exactly the sort of nightmare scenario we're talking about happens can happen. And you have to sort of then struggle uh, to say, no, look, we have this this canonical reality of a, of a pious foundation for the upkeep of cemeteries. And that's what this money is for in trying to persuade a civil court that that's actually what it's for and to treat it as a distinct legal entity. So we've already had that sort of fight in reverse. I think Milwaukee was um, actually... Uh, yeah. a place where that happened under under where, then but Bishop that's like Golden. a perpetual care fund right right but again the that's perpetual a, care fund of the cemetery yeah but that's again it's a foundation it has a separate um yeah it has a separate purpose it has its own funds it has its own you know sort of um oversight line it, it can have its own members it can have you know its own executive and, and all that sort of stuff and therefore so there so there are good things which are existent in civil law namely um 
the reporting requirements of nonprofits, I think the church yeah. could learn a lot from. Well, but what and I th- there are good things that exist. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Please. No, I was say where where I think we're 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 struggling to come up with um, what needs to change in the code and what new realities need to be better accommodated by the law. And I don't know how to do this. And I'd be very interested to have a have a conversation about that. If only we had a podcast in which we could do such a thing. Um, I think we should have a symposium. We've had the conversation. Now it's yeah, time for a symposium. But no, it's it's the. It's the things that bleed across time and place, where you have a set time and a set place. It's pretty easy to to work that out. But what do you do if it's a movable event? The event starts in one place and goes to another, travels through other places. If it's in several different places at once, if it's on the road, if it... Or something like kind of youth... Do you know what Youth 2000 was? Yes. I don't know. Maybe Youth 2000 was organized as an apostolate of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal who seemed to be involved in it. But maybe it wasn't. I, I honestly don't know. Maybe it was a kind of aggregate of, of various persons who had come together, some of them Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, some of them lay people, some of them evangelists, who formed a sort of nonprofit corporation to do this thing, which does go in very different dioceses, but may not have had, you know, very easily one can envision that something like that didn't have a kind of canonical identity at all. Again, that's not an impugnment of the thing so much as the fact that there's really not an easy way, I think, to for apostolic projects like that to even know or or think about an ecclesial identity, or even if they wanted to, no, it's then, the, like, that, know what that's the, the job are. of the church is to, is to see it, test it, label it. Right, yeah. There, you know, yeah. life finds its own way, the law has to then catch up. And, yeah. and that's that's kind of what we're talking about. And and I mean I don't know what a sort of flying circus clause would look like in in book five, but I do think we need one. We need something that recognizes like okay, this this is not necessarily intended permanent. This is not necessarily association primarily for its own sake. It's for a purpose, possibly even a missio canonica. But then who gives it? Um, mm-hmm. it yeah, it might be in several it's places. Not it defined by its members. It's, it's that's not defined by its members. It's not defined by its members. Yeah. And it's not for a perpetual purpose like a perpetual care fund for a seminary or a pious foundation which gives off mass offerings or something each year. I, it just does seem to me like there's a need for either an expansion, maybe a right of the notion of foundations or some other canonical creature, which does that because there's good things in the civil sort of structure of a civil nonprofit. The reporting requirements are really, really good. There's also good things, I think, in the church's sort of norms about ordinary and or extraordinary administration and the way in which sort of certain kinds of expenditures require ecclesiastical approval and, you know, lots of kinds of consultation and engagement with a broader set of stakeholders. On those things with regard to administration, the church's law is quite advanced in terms of getting and fitting different kinds of projects into the church's law, which are not these stable things like parishes. That's where the, it's like we have, if you get in, we have good laws, but very few kind of Catholic things actually end up sort of getting into falling into canonical governance because we have very limited kinds of corporation, corporate identities. You know, here's an idea. This might be a terrible idea or it might be an easy quick fix. What if you had sort of zombie corporations in the church, zombie juridic persons that you could animate or reanimate or possess <laughs> and sort of transfer possession of for these different ad hoc groups. So for example, the Archdiocese of New York erects a foundation, the purpose of which is it's intended permanent, and its purpose of which is something so broad as to be effectively meaningless for the, the good of purpose du jour. Yeah. For for the good of souls. 
or something. This would be not unlike having a titular see. Yes, exactly. Right? And then we you wish do to the append thing a bishop the... to a place. We don't know how to append auxiliary bishops to a place, so we've come up with this idea that the bishop can be the bishop of a dead place. So we can have, yeah, we can have these public juridic persons sort of sitting around, which entities could take up and occupy. And it's like a vacation the, you know, rental, the... you know? You get the keys, you have yeah. to spend it down to zero and leave it uh-huh. as you found it when you're done. But then you, you've got a you've got a built-in ecclesiastical oversight. You know where it lives. You know who to call if there's a problem. You know who the landlord that's is. That's super interesting, Ed. That's really super interesting. This is I love this. This is the this is the sort of canon law that I really get excited about, which is just like let's just find an odd way of fixing an odd problem. And I I think this could yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, that's really super interesting, huh? And then and then if you are one of these people or one of these things that we're talking about, and you don't have you know, you don't know where to go with yourself. You're like, well, we want to do this stuff, and we have this idea. We don't do Even World World Youth Day Lisbon 2023 can become World Youth Day Lisbon 2023, sponsored by the pious the the pious juridic person of the Archdiocese of Lisbon, which exists for the pious, pious various pious purposes. Right, and if you're yes, a- whose canonical mission is to do various, and so the Archbishop of Lisbon has to sort of let you in and say, okay, you can you can use the juridic person yeah. for a while. But it allows you to sort of do that. Yeah, and it gives you sort of bank accounts and oh. a, a boilerplate legal thing that's already in place. And But I, you can bring your own civil structure to it, right? Yeah, I mean, you I, can still have a ton of civil yeah. flexibility, but then you have some sort of... That's super interesting. Hmm. I think it could work. And it can do things like say, well, the the bishop of the diocese is de facto, you know, auditor or president of the board or right, whatever, right, you right. Wanna, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Um, but, and, but also strictly say, however, although he is ex officio chairman of the board or whatever, the the foundation is canonically erected as distinct from the goods of the juridic person of the diocese. And, you know, you can keep it all off to one side and it becomes a sort of personal ex officio link between the local ordinary and the thing without rolling it into lock, stock and barrel the diocese. I think this could work. And then if you're if you're a sort of traveling roadshow thing that's in a couple Actually of- religious institutes have this, right? Because what's happening with Catholic hospitals is that religious institutes of women which are dying out have formed these sort of juridic persons which the which the congregation for institutes of consecrated life has approved, excuse me, to castrate for institutes of consecrated life Dickles has up. approved solely, which has approved solely for the sponsorship of Catholic hospitals. So why do we have this juridic person? What is its end? Its end is the sponsorship of Catholic hospitals. Well, you could easily translate that into its end is the sponsorship of Catholic apostolates, and therefore it can bring its own civil structure to the table and at the same time be subject to a more direct oversight of the church. And at the same time, these churchy things, their goods will be bona ecclesiastic and their work will be in nomine ecclesia. I think it could work. I think that'd be very interesting. And if you have, you know, if this becomes normal practice for a, for example, let's start at the top and say metropolitan archbishops in the United States have one or two of these just, you know, in sitting around in suspended animation at any given moment. And then if you've got a thing that you're doing, you're like, well, we kind of need to fold this into the, you know, actual canonical structure of the church. Where do we want to do it? Then you can basically shop around for a benevolent bishop and just be like, you know, we've got this idea. We like it. We'd like you to be the sponsor. And he says, sure, let me, you know, you congratulations. You are now the, for the, you know, you're getting, you know, here's the, here's the lease on the pious foundation of, you know, the perpetual adoration of St. Crispin's foot or whatever it is. And, and you, know, you could you, even be the moderator of that juridic person for the period of time in which your project is going to be done. Like you could become the administrator of the juridic person because it would only have really have the assets that you brought to it. Exactly. And I mean, you can even change the name. I mean, because changing the name is a simple act of administration. <laughs> so you could just be like, this used to be the... This really is. It's a juridic holding corporation is what it is. Yes. 
I've invented ecclesiastical very, shell corpse. It's a very, it's a very good and interesting idea. I am it is wasted in journalism. I should have. I wanted to teach. I wanted to be an academic. I, I could have done this. I, oh well. Why you're doing it in journalism right now? Yeah, but and no one listens much to us. No one's going to do it. <laughs> I don't. There's a certain cadre I've of people who won't do it. I've been calling for reform to Amoris Laetitia, and has it happened? Or not Amoris Laetitia? Vos Estes Lux Mundi, and has it happened yet? No. There were reforms to Vos Estes Lux Mundi. Yeah, but not the ones we wanted. <laughs> not the ones we wanted. <laughs> want want. Uh, anyway, I, I'm sorry that you're. I'm sorry that you're wasting your time uh, talking with me about these issues. I feel I'm not wasting my time talking with you. But this is well, the best part I of my mean, week. I'm having a great time. I'm saying what you this just is an said idea. is we came up. As you came up with an interesting idea in conversation with me to to, to resolve a problem which I posed. You said, uh, oh, "Man, I should have been doing this in academia where it matters." So I'm no. I'm not saying Ed that you're wasting your time, but you're kind of saying that. No, what I'm actually saying, JD, is <laughs> what we should have done, and we talked about this when we started the pillars. We said, "Is do we really want to make this?" an entirely journalistic endeavor should we make this a sort of quasi canonical think tank that does journalism too we did say that i i don't i i've for myself i've got enough to do running a journalistic <laughs> enterprise yeah that's probably um, true but if you want to if you want to if you wanted to start something called the pillar institute a correlated nonprofit. And man, actually, now that I'm saying this, it sounds awesome. Yeah, it we does. should start something called the Pillar Institute, which is a correlated nonprofit in which we give fellowships to certain kinds of to interesting and smart people to think about things. And then we figure out some way for them to publish their things. This seems if you guys think the Pillar Institute sounds like a good idea, we do also and would like to do this. Would we like should we have a meeting? Yeah, we should definitely have a meeting. What I love about this is that you... Oh, hold on, hold on. I'm going to call this meeting to order. Uh, there's a motion on the table, Ed, to found something called the Pillar Institute, a nonprofit in which we give fellowships to smart people to talk about in, interesting ideas, and then we sort of publish the results of them in some way. It's correlated to the Pillar, but it's an independent nonprofit connected to the Pillar. What do you think? Uh, second. Okay. Uh, can I call... I don't know if I can call the motion because I made the motion but i'll do it anyway uh, okay well i'll call it to call to a vote then all in favor aye aye okay the motion passes unanimously carried what i love is that you've <laughs> yeah. executed a screaming u-turn in three sentences from i'm sorry you think you're wasting your time and you're just being grumpy and this is all <laughs> i have time for and i would never this is a really cool idea let's do this i think the pillar institute which is now a real thing which is, now is very cool. a real juridic person now, because we just a question, held a board meeting here's a question do we want the the pillar is journalism about the Catholic Church undertaken by Catholics? But it is not sort of, we have been clear that it is not sort of, uh, we're not claiming the name Catholic. We are Catholics. We're doing journalism about the Catholic Church, but we're not sort of claiming to be an ecclesial thing or Correct. purporting to be an ecclesial thing or anything like that. Do we want to seek juridic identity for the Pillar Institute? No, because if we were going to have juridic, this is exactly what we were just talking about. <laughs> Who would have oversight? Where would it fit into the ecclesiastical hierarchy? I don't think yeah, the Cardinal Archbishop tricky. of Washington wants the Pillar Institute to be his problem. It's tricky. It's, well, huh. it's not that tricky. If someone has a vacant juridic institute, a zombie juridic person going around that we could we could animate for them, I suppose we could. Although, if you if you are running a Catholic um college or university for example and you would like to if you're running a catholic college or university and you want to 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 start with us a little thing called the pillar institute and we can tell us the name of your donor and we'll call it the pillar institute brought to you by the richie von richie family uh or what have you in which we kind of create a pillar-esque think tank about ecclesial ecclesiastical governance life reform and other such things we are in probably 
Probably. <laughs> All right. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and the Pillar Institute. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, also president of the Pillar Institute. Uh, my whoa, 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 whoa. Pillar, my we didn't have that podcasting <laughs> partner, Pillar co-founder and associate member of the Pillar Institute <laughs> is Ed Condon. And uh, we'll be back. What do you want to be? What do you want your job to be in the Pillar Institute? Uh, I think this could be a really actually good and you cool You watch thing. how this is going to turn out to be the best idea we ever had. Gosh, I love it so we got to figure out who gets what job you can i i honestly i'm pretty content being editor of the pillar so if you want to be boy this is hard for me if you want to be president of the pillar institute it's okay with me you could be president i'll be chairman of the board let's find out what what sort of canonical shape it takes because if if this ends up being folded into an ecclesiastical institution of some kind like a catholic college or university i'm gonna make a bid for rector magnificus oh that's a very good point all right everybody we'll be back next week with a fully operational think tank <laughs>